I'm the kind of person who doesn't like telling people no. I thrive in times of peace. I've learned, however, that moments of peace never last as long as I'd hoped. Life's complicated. People make it complicated. They were simple instructions given to a king. All that was needed was obedience, to walk in the path that God had laid out for him. But he turned from it. And I was the one chosen to bring correction, to have the tough conversations, to step out of peace into conflict. I suppose I could have chosen an easier path, one that followed the leader of the nation. But I chose to keep straight, to let God lead me, regardless of how complicated this path would become. Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today at First Christian Church, and we're going to look at some scripture together. My name is Wayne Kent. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad you're with us. Would you grab a Bible, please? We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's about that far through the Bible, maybe a third of the way. If you've got it on your smartphone uh, or your tablet, that's great. If you don't have one, a Bible with you, you'll notice there's one in the pew rack in front of you. We'd be honored if you'd take that home as our gift to you today. I want to begin our time in uh, 1 Samuel 15, and we're going to stay there today, so you don't have to be planning to jump around a lot. Um, I want to begin our time today, though, by telling you a story that's very old, predates 1 Samuel 15. As a matter of fact, it's 3,300 plus years old. It's very, very old. You probably, uh, I don't know if anyone was around during that time. No, but no, I don't think none of you were, but nonetheless, uh, you may know the story. It's a story about a guy named Moses, that name ring a bell at all. Moses, um, well, to, to do it very quickly... There were a bunch of people who were slaves in a land called Egypt, the same Egypt we have today in the same place, and the slaves were all Jewish. They were, all, they were the nation of Israel, and um, they, historians think there may have been about a million Jewish people residing in Egypt, slaves, kind of running Pharaoh's kingdom for him. Moses comes along, one of their own Jewish people says, I think we can all get out of here, and with God's help, we'll get out. we won't be slaves any longer. It's exactly what happened. Uh, with God's help, they were able to move in to become ex-slaves. They actually left Egypt, and uh, he had a stick with him. It's called his staff, and he, it wasn't that there was magical powers in the stick, but there were things that God would do through that stick that would just kind of amaze people. Like one time as they're leaving Egypt, they, they come up against the Red Sea, and there's nowhere to go. The Egyptians are chasing them. What do you do with a million people when you come up against a, you know, a, a sea? What are you going to do? So... Moses did this. He held, took that stick and he held it out over the water. And the most amazing thing happened. The water parted. God's power was just made known. And, you know, it wasn't a magic stick but, or a magic wand or anything like that. But this was the power of God. And it was demonstrated, if you will, when he held that stick up. So they made their way through the sea, came to what we know today as the Sinai Peninsula. And it was not a very nice place, very inhospitable. Very inhospitable. Um, they had to figure out how to get water every day, how to get food every day, long story short. But um, th there were also problems that they, they were moving into this territory where they were kind of marauding nomad bands and tribes that would really make life miserable for anyone who lived there. One of those groups that would come in and attack was a group known as the Amalekites. Um, and so from time to time, the Amalekites and the Jewish people would get in it, in, into it. And uh, so one day... 
Moses says to his top commander, Joshua, we're going we're to do in the Amalekites. We're going to be done with this. And I want, us to, I want us to go to war with the Amalekites. And so you take all the men and you go fight and I'll stand on a hill above you and I'll hold this stick where the power of God will be demonstrated and, and I'll hold it up. And that's what he did. Moses stood up on the mountain, on the hill above the battlefield. And as long as he held his hand up here with the stick, then uh, the Jewish people would win. But he was 80 years old. I mean, I wouldn't want, I'm not 80 years old, it's getting closer, but nonetheless, some of you look at me and go, it's getting really close way. No, it's not, still a ways off yet, okay? And I, if I was to hold my hand out here for a long time, I'd get tired, right? You'd prop it up for a while, and then eventually your arm would get tired, and you would come down, particularly you got a long stick hanging out there. And so what happened was, every time he let his arm down, the battle would go against the Jewish people. So he'd put it back up again. Well, eventually he just couldn't do it anymore. And so two guys, two of his kind of top right-hand guys came and they put a stone underneath him. And they sat him down on the stone and they held his hands up like this. And for the rest of the day, those two guys, I imagine their arms were tired. I mean, even if it was somebody holding your arms up, don't you think it get tiring to hold your hand there like this? Eventually, the Jewish people won and they were able to let his hands down. When, when that battle was done and he was got his hands down, Moses said, let's do something to mark this space. And so they put up a memorial marker. And the memorial marker was called, the, the Lord is my banner. And it was where they said, we're going to remember this place from now on. Excuse me, but in doing so, Moses made, made this statement. Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, because these Amalekites tried to come against us, and then their hands were lifted at us and against us, and I lifted my hands before the Lord, but they were against the Lord, and so forth and so on. He said, because of all of this and the way in which these Amalekites have treated these poor ex-slaves, then from now on there's going to be for generations this struggle between the two nations. And that's exactly what happened. That all took place 3,300 years ago, 1,300 years before Jesus came along. 300 years later, there were still skirmishes going on between the two nations. But by this time, Israel was no longer just a, a group of ex-slaves. They'd wandered around in the desert and the wilderness there for a little while. They'd eventually landed in the place that we call Israel today. Their lives were much better. They were no longer a bunch of skittish, kind of a fearful ex-slaves, always looking over their shoulder. But in fact... The trajectory of their nation had gone like this, from being slaves to where they were about to be the world's superpower, the world's leaders, if you will. In 300 years, that took place. And you go, how did that take place in just 300 years? Well, if you could, think about our own nation's history over the last 300 years. We are certainly different than we were 300 years ago. 300 years ago, 2016 minus 300 is 1716, right? 1716 we were not even a nation. We were still a colony. We weren't known as the United States of America. The Revolutionary War had not taken place. As a matter of fact, what did the people of Europe think of us, who, the people who lived in this place called, now called the United States of America? Europeans would view this place as, well, you know, there's a bunch of savage Indian tribes. We know that that's not the case, but that's the way it would have been described <coughs> Excuse me, in those days. Savage Indians, we now know them to be warrior nations, but that's a different approach, different look. And 
He got, if you will, again, the savage Indians, and he got a bunch of ex-European malcontents who couldn't make it in the real world of Europe and who, if you will, didn't have the financial means to do well over there, so they thought, well, we'll start life over and we'll go over to the colonies and try again. And yet here it is, 300 years later, we're different, aren't we? 300 years later, our nation is a nation that is, for all intents and purposes, the leader of the world. Well, that's the same way it was for the people of Israel. They went from being slaves to 300 years later, basically leading the world. But that 300 years, just like our own history, is very complicated. Now, please let me just say this. I am by no means comparing Israel's history with the U.S.'s history, saying that they're similar or that they're... That, that's, in fact, heretical. There's a heresy known as British Israelism, which puts, if you will, ancient Israel's experience onto Western ideals, and it creates all kinds of trouble. I'm not suggesting that in any way. It's called British Israelism, if you weren't interested in that. It's heretical. But what I am suggesting is that in 300 years, the whole nation, a nation's history and lifestyle and approach to life can change. And that's certainly what happened here in our land, and it's certainly what happened in the nation of Israel. But along the way of those 300 years, there's all kinds of complicated stories, right? And, and as a matter of fact, if you take just the last 30 days, let alone 300 years, but the last 30 days of your life, haven't there been some complications along the way? You take the last three years, or those who are old enough, take the last 30 years. Nobody's got 300 years of history, but if you've got 30 years of history, your life has had some complications, and you've certainly looked at other people over a, even a brief period of time, and you go, man, their lives are so complicated. Well, that's what we're doing right now this, this month. We're looking at how does a complicated life find the heart of God and do what God calls us to do. We are um, coming up to 1 Samuel 15. We're now 1,000 years before Jesus was born. So this is 3,000 years ago. And uh, we're going to read about two characters, one a fellow by the name of Samuel and a fellow by the name of Saul. Samuel was the spiritual leader in the nation. Saul was the man who was the king of the nation. The nation had asked God to say, and they'd gone to Samuel and said, we like the fact that you're the spiritual leader and the spiritual voice, but we want a political voice as well. So they appointed king, uh, a king. He was Saul, the first king of the nation Israel. He was 30 years old when he became king. He ruled for 42 years. He'd started out very well, but throughout his life made error after error. And by the time you get to 1 Samuel 15, it has really caught up with him. And we're going to find out that the Amalekites, that same marauding group that used to bother the Jewish people back in the Sinai Peninsula, they're raising their head again. And so um, Moses had said there's going to be struggle between them for generation after generation. This is one of the struggles. So if you'll read it with me, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read this. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. In other words, hey, Saul, I was around before you got around. I was leading the nation before you were named king. As a matter of fact, I was the one who named you king. When the people said they wanted a king, you were this 30-year-old kid, in essence. And now look at where you are. And so I'm, I'm, because of the authority I have in your life, and we'll come back to that again yet later today, because of the authority I have in your life, I'm speaking into your life, and this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they weighed them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites, totally destroy that all belongs to them. 
Don't spare them. Put them to death. Men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. So that's what Saul does. He gets all his men together. He gets 200,000 foot soldiers um, and another 10,000 from Judah. They go down to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he goes to the Kenites and say, okay, you Kenites, different group. But this, on this occasion, if you go back in Israel, again, this complicated business. If you go back in Israel's history, where, where the Amalekites had fought Israel as they came out of Egypt, the Kenites had said, hey, come on, can we help you? And so here it is now, 300 years later, and because the Kenites had been kind in the past, they're going to be, they're going to be treated with kindness because Saul says to them, verse 6, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I don't destroy you along with them. You showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So with that, the Kenites move away, and there's going to be this battle. Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, which is strange. I thought he was supposed to kill everybody. So he's got the king. And all the people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag along with the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves, the lambs. Everything was good. These, they were unwilling. Pay attention to that verb. They were unwilling. It's an action they took. They were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes, okay? There's unwilling business. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me. He's not carried out my instructions. Samuel's angry. He cries out to the Lord all night long, and early in the morning he gets up and he goes to try and meet Saul. He goes to Carmel, then he goes to Gilgal, and finally when he finds him in verse 13, Samuel reaches him and Saul says, Hey, the Lord bless you. I carried out all the Lord's instructions, and I've done everything that God has said to me, told me that I was supposed to do, but of course we know that's not the case, right? And so Samuel said, What? Then what's this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What's the lowing of cattle? If everything was dead, how come I can hear some, how come I hear these animals? And Saul answered, well, you need to know. It was the soldiers. The soldiers made me bring them. And so he blames the soldiers. Now, I must admit that to us with modern ears, this passage of scripture is really hard. It's very hard because we, we see this kill everybody, kill everything, destroy everything. And you go, well, what's with that? I mean, it doesn't make sense at all because we go, well, we're not that kind of people. We wouldn't say to kill everybody and destroy everything, would we? But here's the problem. What, where the difficulty comes is that God told Saul to do one thing, and he chose another thing. So if we can get outside our modern ears, the issue, issue isn't for our discussion today, the killing of everybody. It's the fact that he disobeyed. And the re, uh, because he didn't disobey, as a result of that, there was struggle yet to come. And there's, the, there's the, one of the lessons is you either obey or you don't obey, but if you disobey, there's going to be struggle. As a matter of fact, struggle came along 500 years later. Here's what happens. Israel, 3,300 years ago, are slaves. They become ex-slaves. By the time you get to 1 Samuel 15, the nation is doing really well. Within 500 years from there, they're back slaves again. And as they are slaves, and a fellow by the name of Xerxes becomes king over them, well, there's a guy in Xerxes' kingdom by the name of Haman who hates Jewish people. And so he gets a conspiracy going, and he says, we should, we should get the king to kill all the Jewish people. It goes this way from Esther chapter 3. 
Haman said to the king, there's a certain people, Jews, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. They keep themselves separate. Now, actually, he's lying to the king, but this is his language, and this is what he says. Their customs are different from those of other people. They don't obey the king's laws. Again, which is not true, but that's what he says to the king. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. Just annihilate all the Jewish people, you know. And the king says, okay, we don't want Jews around anymore. We're just going to kill them all. And, excuse me, if it hadn't been for the work of a young Jewish woman by the name of Esther, there would be no Jews alive today. She literally saved their nation. And here's the deal. That man, Haman, who wanted all the Jews killed, guess where he was from? He was an Amalekite. He If Saul had followed what God had asked him to do 500 years earlier, there would have been none of these struggles that went on and on and on, generation after generation. Here's the king. He's been made king at age 30 years of age, Saul, as the nation's going like this, and they're just about to peak. He's he's the future of of of, of the nation, and he should be able to live with great success. But he stopped listening to the divine instructions of God given to him through Samuel. And so by the time you get to to, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, he is in very deep trouble. As a matter of fact, by the time we get there, this is the second time, second precise time that he has broken protocol with God. The first time that that happened, next slide, guys. The first time that that happened, uh, it was a case that... um, God said to him, hey, if you're not going to follow me, then I'm, I'm not going to follow the plan. You know, I planned that you, your family would be in charge. Would, you, you, you'd be kings for, for a long time. There'd be a dynasty. And the first time God said, well, because you didn't follow me, then that's not going to happen. But now the second time, God says, I've had it up to here. This time, because you won't obey, not only is your family not going to have a dynasty, but you are not going to remain king much longer. And, and here's the problem. The whole issue was his own arrogance. He, he, was, he was like, well, I know God said this. I know God said, get rid of everything. But truth be told, that just doesn't make sense. God's, God's rules don't make sense. And since they don't make sense, then I've got a better idea. We'll do it a little bit differently. And the result was tragedy for him and, frankly, for the nation of Israel. Very quickly. Read with me beginning in verse, um, verse uh, 14 where uh, Samuel says, okay, I can hear these sheep bleeding. Samuel reaches him and, the, and Saul says, the Lord bless you. Samuel says, what then is this I hear, the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And then Saul starts blaming other people. Well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice. Yeah, well, they say... Here's why they saved him. It's like he's making it up as he's going along. Yeah, here's the story. They saved them so that we could sacrifice them. But we totally destroyed the rest. And Samuel says, enough. Let me tell you what the Lord told me last night. Although you were once small in your eyes, though there was a time when no one knew who you were and you weren't the king, did you not become the head of all the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why didn't you obey? 
And particularly, why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Samuel, I mean, Saul starts lying. Well, I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I destroyed the Amalekites, but I did bring back their king. So you really didn't destroy them. You actually brought the king back. And the soldiers, it wasn't my fault. The soldiers, I mean, here he is, the king, and the soldiers are telling him what to do? No. The soldiers, he's saying, took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to... We're going to sacrifice them. But Samuel says, does the Lord delight in sacrifices? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Can I put it this way? All the piety that you might have at communion time means nothing compared to obeying the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Rebellion, and this is what he's calling Saul out. He's saying, rebellion, you're a rebellious man. It's like the sin of divination. Your arrogance, and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. And because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And there's a fascinating thing that takes place right now. Saul realizes he's in really, really deep trouble. And so he's trying to plead his case. He says, I've sinned, I've violated the Lord's command, and your instructions, I was afraid of the men. Why would the king be afraid of the men? So I gave in to them? That's nuts. You're the king. You're the one in charge. You're the one who has the authority. Now I beg you, forgive my, my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. In verse 27, Samuel says, mm-mm, I'm out of here. He's so angry as he turns to leave. Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, one who is better than you. And God, who is the glory of Israel, does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. Hmm. Saul realizes, man, I am in such deep trouble. He finally sort of comes to his senses and he goes, as Samuel's about to leave, he says, please don't, please don't leave. And as he's about to leave, he grabs a hold of a piece of Samuel's clothing, and Samuel's in such a fury, he's walking away, and the clothing tears. And in many ways, it's symbolic of how the whole kingdom that he had, that Saul had in his hand, is going to be torn from his hands. There's the story. Complicated. Lots of background, lots of history, lots of ins and outs. And today, I'd like to say, okay, in light of that story, what could we learn? I want to, first of all, approach it in two ways. I want to, first of all, give you some ways in which we can look at Samuel using, I would use this language, confronting someone who is out of the will of God. How would we, what what are ways that, what are tips that, that Samuel would give us when it comes to, if you are speaking into the life of someone who's not walking with Jesus Christ? You know people, I know people who'd say, well, I'm a spiritual person, but all that God business and all that business of being doing it with Jesus and what the Bible says, I'm not interested in that. How do you speak into that discussion? How do you, how do you give some reasonable, gentle, appropriate answers or difficult answers? What, what are some tips in that regard? Because Samuel gives them to us. And then secondly, I have, if you will, a brief personal comment and along with a request. But let's start with the first stuff. And that is, how is it when we're trying to... You, you see someone and you go, okay, they are not... Oh, I wish I had a way to speak into their life to um, make it better so they would know, they'd, they'd at least start a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. How do you confront somebody like that? How do you advise them? 
Well, may I remind you that that has to start, our discussion with them, that conversation has to be based on the depth of the relationship to start with. Walking up to somebody at McDonald's and say, repent or go to hell, probably is not going to get you very far. That's not going to work. I mean, people do that, but it doesn't, it just makes others angry. But if you know someone you see at McDonald's and you've got a long, deep relationship with them and you sit down over lunch and in the course of conversation you go, you know, we've done a lot of life together. Could, could, could I speak into something that I see going on? And, and in other words, you can only confront as deep as the relationship, as, the, as, as well as you've done life together. And certainly in the case of Saul and Samuel, they'd done life together. Now, they're in different spaces in life. I get that. But it was Samuel who had installed Saul was king. It was Samuel who pointed him out to the whole nation. They had a lot of relationship, and so Samuel is able to walk into that thing and say, you're being an idiot. What are you doing? You didn't obey God? I don't know if that's the best language that you could use with somebody. You're being an idiot? But if the relationship is really deep, maybe it is the right language. I don't know, but the point being, if the relationship is deep, you can speak to deep matters. If you don't know them, it's really hard to get their attention and legitimately so. Because people, when you first meet them and you're first in that sort of setting, they would be more inclined to be like Saul and tell lies, right? Oh, I know God. or I, I, I. But you don't have to accept those lies. Samuel didn't accept Saul's lies. He said, you're saying you did everything, then how come I can hear sheep? Bah, bah, bah. You know, he just called it out as it is. You're, you're not really doing what you're saying. You're lying. In all honesty, I have folk come in my office from time to time, and they say, I want this fixed, this fixed, that, the other. And you just know. You're not telling the whole story. You're, if you're going to come clean, come clean. Don't lie. Don't pretend. If we're gonna, we've got this deep relationship, then I'm, I'm pouring my life into you. I'm, I'm wanting things to be better for you and for us together. Don't lie. But on the other hand, you have to acknowledge that sometimes people don't listen. Saul didn't listen. He kept saying, oh, it's the soldier's fault. It, it, it's, but you know what? It was all based on his own approach to life. And basically, he was in arrogant rebellion before God. You see, we read in verse 9. Okay, they're told, this is what you're supposed to do. But in verse 9, we read that Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything was good. And these they were, it says, unwilling to destroy. It's a verb. They are unwilling to destroy. That word unwilling in Hebrew is very much the same word, very close to, this, to a different Hebrew word that's the word for to be in rebellion. What's the scripture telling us there? This unwillingness on the part of Saul to do what God called him to do is in fact rebelling against what God called him to do. Which, if you think about it, is you and me when we say, well, God says this, but I got a better idea. You know, we're like Ford. Remember Ford always said, Ford, a better idea. Do you remember that slogan they used to have? Well, I'm Ford. I've got a better idea. God says do this. No, I got a better idea. But that willingness to say, Lord, that may be your, your approach but I'm going to take this approach, that is rebellion. It really is. You may not have called it that before in the past. You may have said it's disobedience, but isn't disobedience rebellion? Isn't disobedience and rebellion very similar to arrogance? 
If I'm rebelling, I'm saying my ideas are better than God's. And once I've said that, then I'm going to rebel more. So it's like rebellion and arrogance are on the two, two sides of the same coin. coin, pardon me. Because I'm saying, I've got a better idea. I've got a better idea. Friends, we can't be like that. Not to moralize. But to say that if we're going to be people who follow God in Jesus Christ, then we say, I'm, I'm not going to accept the better idea on my part. My brain is nowhere near as big as God's. I know that. You all know that as well, right? So I'm going to be saying, God, your ideas are better than mine. However, having said all that, those three ways in which we have to deal with people and even, in fact, deal with our family members and so on, may I point out to you one thing that does happen in the story, and that is that Samuel still has space, because of the relationship, he still has space in his life for a lot of grace for Saul. Read with me, um, verse 27, all right? Saul catches um, Samuel's robe, and, and Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors. And then Saul goes after all that. Ah, he finally comes to his senses and he says, I've sinned. But please, please, honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. And so what do we read? Samuel says, okay. He goes back with Saul and Saul worships the Lord. You really screwed up, Saul. Your life is a mess. You're going to lose your kingdom over this, but... Okay, I'm past being angry. Let me walk with you arm in arm because of our relationship and let me bring you to a place of worship. The die is cast. Saul's fate is already in play. But I love the fact that Samuel still has grace that says, we're still going to do life together. I'm not just cutting you off. God's decisions are in play, but I'm still going to do life with you. Now, I, I need to tell you, friends, the rest of the story gets way more complicated after this. I'd invite you this week, go ahead and read the rest of 1 Samuel, and you're going to, he eventually dies. He loses his life. His sons lose their life in a battle, all because of 1 Samuel 15. It's very complicated. You're going to read about witches. You're going to read about spirits being called up from the dead. And you're going to read about where they lose their lives. They're actually, their bodies are taken. They are impaled on stakes in a wall in a city called Bethshan. And you can go there today and you can see Bethshan has been excavated. And you can walk down the streets of Bethshan where Saul and his sons were killed. And you can see where they, the, the, they don't know which wall, but you can see that city. You can walk through it in about an hour and a half. You can see where all that took place. What's the big lesson? The big lesson is this. Follow God, friends. Follow God. Our ideas have to always be underneath God's ideas. Obedience is better than our ideas. We worship God. We follow God on his terms, not ours. Because he's God and we're not. It's very clearly what comes to us out of this passage of scripture here. That was my first thing. How do we, how do we deal with just walking with people who say you're not walking with Jesus? But then secondly, I said I wanted to give you a brief personal comment as well. See, because... If you're like me, when I read stories like this, I transpose myself into the story. Do you do that? And uh, some of you today are feeling like you're Samuel. I, I read this and I go, am I like Saul in any way? Uh, is there any of Saul that's within me? After all, I'm not really Saul. I'm not a king. I don't sit on a throne. I um, 
don't have a family dynasty, if you will. I, I don't have soldiers at my beck and call to go and conquer some king and bring him back here. I don't have soldiers that are going to put a bunch of sheep in the back 40 of the church's parking lot on my behalf. Uh, and yet I look at him and I see that he's, if you will, in the twilight of his career. And I'm not in the twilight of my career, but I am fully aware that in terms of my ministry life, there are more days in the past than there are in the future. After all, I started full-time ministry in 1978. I was 19 years of age. That was 38 years ago. If you were to add another 38 years to where I am today, well, that'd be really odd. I'd be 96 years of age, and to be in ministry at that point would be both odd and I'd be really old, and everybody would have the right to say that's really odd. Mind you, <laughs> Billy Graham's doing it, so why not? But nonetheless, my point being, as I look at this story, it's easy for me to see this, would I, or to ask this question, am I in any way like Saul? Because here's what I'm quite aware. I hope you can hear this without pride or self-indulgence on my part. But given the responsibilities I have in this community of faith and the community at large, I'm quite aware of this, that my spirituality, Wayne Kent's spirituality, my spirituality must remain under God's leadership for the sake of me, the sake of my family, and for the sake of our church. And that's where Saul got wonky. He got out from under God's authority got out from under following God. He rebelled and said, my idea is better than God's. Looking at my own life, I cannot do that. I don't want to speak for you in this matter, but not in the twilight years of my ministry, but I'm quite aware, as I said, there are more days in the past than there are in the front. And so I'm constantly saying, God, am I being the man you want me to be? We have some things in play to help me in that regard. We have a meeting that gathers a group of people, staff members that gather every Monday afternoon at 2.30. And among the many things that are on the agenda each Monday afternoon is a review of what I said in the, on the stage the week before, the day before. And it's, no, it, it's, you know, they can come with their punching gloves, they can come with their sticks, and they go, what were you thinking? Were you, you, you're an idiot, Wayne, why did you say that? Well, nobody's ever called me an idiot yet and kept their job, but no, no. <laughs> No, no, that's the point. That's the point. There's nothing sacred in that room in terms of what Wayne has done that, we, that they cannot. I, if you will, we have mutual accountability for my sake, for the sake of everybody in the room, and for the sake of this congregation. Because my responsibility as one of the leaders of this church is to be certain that we as a congregation are going the direction God calls us to go and that we never get out from under his authority and that we're never in rebellion in any way. And I, So to, to make certain that happens, everything that comes off this stage every weekend is, is um, under scrutiny, if you will, come Monday afternoon at 2.30. And uh, that's very healthy for us. It keeps us all honest. And it keeps us open and, and transparent with one another. And I think it keeps the message that I bring or anybody else brings more honest and helpful as well. So we have those kinds of things in play already. And there's one other thing that we have in play that this is where I would say I have a personal request of you. And that is that it's been my habit um, that in July my schedule changes. And so beginning tomorrow 
Um, apart from that meeting at 2.30, my schedule will change through the next four to five weeks. Namely, um, while from the outward appearance from the congregation, it doesn't look any different, July every year is a study month for me where I take time to say, okay, where are we and where do we need to be? And particularly, what does that mean in terms of messages that need to come from the pulpit and from the stages um, in, throughout 2017 and what's the direction for our church in 2017? And I know for all of us in our personal calendars, 2017 is a long way off. But when it comes to preaching, it's not that far off. Just to prepare and to study and be ahead of the game and also give our creative teams lots of time. So if they want to do some video work or want to do special music that relates to that, they've got lots of time to prepare. So uh, in the coming month, I'll be involved in a lot of study uh, with a different schedule than what I would normally have. And to that end, I'm aware of this. It's kind of like the Amalekites or the forces of evil would consistently come against a congregation generation after generation after generation. And we need to hold the word of God out over top of that and say we are the people of God and the people of God will win just like, they, like Moses did with Aaron and Ur as he sat on that rock. They brought that rock and they put it underneath him and they held out his hands. Here's what I'm asking you to do, friends. Throughout the next month, throughout the month of July, would you hold my hands for me in prayer? I'm asking you to pray because I need to, I, I need to hear God's word for our church. Uh, not that I'm the sole voice, but, but certainly have a, a part to play in that. And I need to be certainly open to write books, that I look at the right passages of Scripture, and that we begin to make the right plans for the coming year. And I'm inviting you to join me in that by prayer, Okay. To that end, would you stand with me right now and let's pray and ask God to be engaged in our lives.